Very good. Just got to let you know, it feels really weird getting up when you have this microphone on because you don't have anything to hold. It's got no microphone. I should have just grabbed a Bible or something just to hold for that security to know that it's okay, but um, I did it scared anyway, so that's all good. Thank you, Andy. I got, little, I got props this morning. Oh, I've got one prop. Thanks, mate. Put that there. Thank you. We'll get that out later. Build a bit of suspense, hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you for last week for Count Me In Sunday. For those of you that gave, that volunteered to serve, that have been part of team, if you missed last week for Count Me In, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. Um, we shared, we gave you a basically, it was a half time report, a half year report on how we're tracking with things in our vision for our building, for real care, the projects that we're still yet to do, the things that we have done. Um, so thank you to all those that, that gave and, and were involved. Many of you might have taken a Count Me In pack last week, and today you can take it to the info desk and hand that in if you wanted time to think about it. And if you weren't here, grab a Count Me In pack from the info desk today, because we can keep them coming in over the next few weeks. But it's just great opportunities to give and to serve and be involved in the life of church. So it'd be fantastic for you to do that. We talked about some new initiatives coming up. And one of them is The Table, which has been a, a great response so far. But it's on the last weekend of July. And what it is, is we're doing church that weekend, but it's not how we know it. So we're not having our normal traditional 10 a.m. service here at the church what we are doing is having multiple gatherings in multiple locations across the weekend, from the Friday night to the Sunday night. And so there'll be morning teas, there'll be breakfast, there'll be dinners, there'll be lunches, and it's about gathering and connecting together. So people have asked, isn't that just a life group? It's bigger than a life group. So it's more than your, your five or your ten in a room together, but it's, it's a bigger sort of gathering, but it's not this big of a gathering. And I don't know what it's like for you when you come on Sunday, but on Sunday... Often it can be, um, you don't have a lot of time for connection. And so we're just saying we want to be intentionally creating more time for natural relationship building and connecting together. We're going to, what we're doing at the moment is we've had a number of uh, life group leaders and department leaders have said we're going to host one of these. We're just gathering their details. Life group leaders, you should have received an email this week. It's coming soon in Jesus' name. Um, where you put your information down to say we're ready to host it and then in the next week or two you will be able to register for one of these gatherings, one of these tables. They will involve food, they will involve people and they will involve connecting and we, will, we at the office are going to be allocating people so that you don't know everyone in your group. Scary thought but it's an opportunity to meet some new people. We've had a lot of new people join Real Life Church. I think there's nearly 20 people coming to Connect Lunch today, and our heart is that they wouldn't just connect with the leaders and the team at lunch today, but they would connect with all of us together. So church is happening on the last weekend of July, but it's going to look different to what it does today. So you'll hear more about that. You'll hear about that every Sunday for the next month. So you'll be you'll be ready for the table. And the harder is it that you would make room at your table for new people in your world and connect with them. That'd be good. The Sunday before July, Super Sunday, we've got water baptisms in the service. We've got a barbecue lunch afterwards. And seeing as how you've stayed for lunch, you can then come and help with the working bee because that's the funnest part. No, it's just going to be a great morning. We're going to have water baptisms in the service. We're going to have a barbecue lunch together. And then we're going to stay around and do a working bee just to help make 
our house, this church, as great as it can be for those that come in and use the building. So we'd love you to be a part of that as well. Something else I didn't tell you about last week, but I want to tell you about today. In two weeks' time, we are having a NADOC service. Now, NADOC recognises and acknowledges and celebrates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people in this nation, the contributions that they make, and the, the, basically it's a celebration of Aboriginal culture, Torres Strait Islander culture, and their achievements. And this year, I've invited a friend of mine, her name is Donna Meehan, you may have heard of her, she's an author. To introduce her, we're going we, we're gonna to play a video it's Bible Society have produced a video. They celebrated 200 years in Australia this year, which is an amazing achievement for Bible Society. And they did a little interview video with Donna, who's our guest speaker in two weeks. And rather than me introduce you to her, I thought we could play that video just to show you who she is if she's coming in two weeks. So give me the, the yay or the nay. And we'll see if this video works. That's it. I can hear it. The train's coming. Well, I've never actually been back to the platform. I mean, when we go for funerals, you see it. You see the old train station. It would be 57 years ago when we were taken away. And I can remember that day as clear as it was yesterday. filled it was just adults and there was kids and they were running in and out of the adults legs and we were just excited because we were going to go for a train ride it was our first train ride and mum kept brushing her hair and saying you kids mind your manners now I'll never know the anguish that she had that night going to bed and realising that tomorrow she's going to have to surrender her seven children so yeah, the train came in. Wow. We didn't know that we'd been taken away. We just thought we were going for a joyride. I was brought to Boomerang train station. The welfare lady said, this is your new mummy and daddy. You go with them, they'll give you something to eat. And then that's how my life started in Newcastle. I was always a fish out of water and lived racism and prejudice every day of my life. I just wonder, you know, looking back how I made it through, but for the love of my parents. They were Christians and gave me my first Bible. So I've known Jesus since I was five. I'd go and kneel at my bed and I would just sob and sob 
and I'd ask the Lord, you know, for those answers and he would always give me the answers in his word. The Bible Society is the longest living organisation in the country. Our main job is to make sure that people have access to the Bible in a language they can understand, a language of their heart. And every year uh, we distribute uh, around our network something like 32 million Bibles to uh, the nations of the world. There's around about 7,000 languages in the world and only about 500 of those have a complete Bible. So there's still plenty of work to do to make sure that every person on the planet has access to God's Word. We recognise that not everyone has had a good experience at the hands of people who've come to them carrying a Bible. We want to reverse that. Uh, we want to be here for good. And we want to ask people to take a look at the good book itself, even if the people carrying it have done you wrong. We've seen the difference it makes in people's lives. Uh, we've seen individuals flourish. We've seen families changed, communities transformed, all because of taking seriously the message of the scriptures. And there's really no telling what God will do when his word is put into people's hands. My story, my journey was hard enough for me. Other people had it much harder. My brothers went to institutions and raised it with no love. Their healing has taken a lot longer. My healing has come through the power of God's word and allowing him to heal me. So that's Donna. She's an incredible lady. When I first heard her speak, the first thing she said was she apologised to every white person in the room for the harms that the Aboriginal people had done to them. I got up and I said, I'm pretty sure it's our job. And um, she's just so humble, so soft, and you can see God at work in her. She doesn't have an inch of... Um, hatred in her. I haven't seen it anyway. So she's an inspiring lady. I found out that her daughter-in-law actually owns a cafe here in Maitland, so there's a connection to, to this city. But um, I invited her because we can't change the past. We can learn from it and we can move forward together. And I actually think the church has a key role in the reconciliation in this nation between the First Nation people and the people that call it home today. I don't know why I get emotional every time I talk about this, but I um, didn't plan on this. It's not in the notes. <laughs> but I, I just think it's going to be a great morning. And Donna's, um, she's going to share a bit of her story, but also just about how God's worked in her life. And um, I, I've given her the morning the freedom to share what she wants. I've asked her to share some of her story, but she's an incredible lady. Thanks, Louis. She um, has written a book about her story, if you are interested more about it. But that's in two weeks' time. I will say this, that it is school holidays, so I know some of you will be away and, and kids will be in, in the service, but um, if you can be here, it'd be great to be here for that morning as we acknowledge and celebrate NAIDOC week, but also hear Donna's story and learn from it and see what God wants to say through it to us. And um, I'll bring my tissues, and that'll be good. All right, moving along. Today's message is called Tax Time. Excitement, I know, we've just gone from there to there, transition, smooth. 
tax time coming up. It comes from this passage of, passage of Scripture which we're going to read right now. Matthew 17, verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two... The collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. This is in case I pray for anyone later. So that there's no lingering effects of what I'm about to do. I went fishing this week to Coles. I got a little friend to join us. Well, I've got his head because they didn't have any whole fish there either because apparently when you catch fish, you've got to keep the body. But these guys have kept the head. So here's our fish for this morning's illustration. I'm not going to hold him the whole time, don't worry. I will auction him off later. You are not going to learn anything about fishing this morning. But this is one of those stories in the Bible, you can read it and go over it, but it's actually quite bizarre, it's actually quite unique, that Peter would go to the lake and he would find a coin, there he is, Just there's our prop right there, this 50 cent coin is an exact replica of the two drachma coin that was in the Bible, four drachma coins, sorry, Mato, correct me. We're not going to learn anything about fishing this morning. But there is something about this fish and this coin that I think we can learn from today. And we're going to, we're going to break down this story and we're going to look at how, how a coin in a fish's mouth can relate to us today, can speak to us today, can challenge us today, because there is some challenging elements of what I want to say today, but can also remind us of who God is and what he has done for us, all from a coin in a fish's mouth. I think we should take this out to kids' church later and let them have some fun with it. And I'll put him back down in there. There we go. He may come out a bit later. I'm going to get rid of the gloves because it's disgusting. <laughs> Tissues come in handy. Thanks, Louis. Jesus and his disciples, they arrive in Capernaum. Capernaum is the town on the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing town. It's a fishing village. In Matthew 4.13, we read that Jesus actually lived there for a time. He moved there after being in Nazareth. And it's also the place where Peter and Andrew and some of the other disciples called home. So it's a place that they are familiar with. It's a place that they are returning to, a place where they're returning to a town where it's familiar, where they are familiar with the people. They are known there. Jesus is known there. The disciples are known there. And upon returning to Capernaum, Peter is confronted with this question about Jesus. The question is this. It's a bit of an accusation sort of question. He says, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? The temple tax was two drachmas, which was the equivalent of two days' wages. It was an annual tax that was to be paid to the temple for the upkeep and the services provided by the temple. It originated from Moses. If you read Exodus 30, you can see the origins of this tax and why it was there. 
This temple tax was often referred to as the atonement for the soul. To atone means to make amends. In the Bible, atonement is associated with man's sin. And so this tax represents atonement. This tax is something that every person in the town had to pay once a year for the upkeep of the temple. It was an important tax. Anyway, Peter is asked the question. He's asked if Jesus pays it. And he says, yes, he does pay it. Peter answers on Jesus' behalf. It's unclear in this story whether Jesus had paid it or not. It's unclear whether there was confusion as to whether they'd received it or not. Maybe they'd been out of town for a while and they didn't know that it was collected. We don't know whether it was paid or not. We just know that the question was asked, does he pay the temple tax? And he says, yes, he does. Not sure why they asked the question, but they asked the question. Jesus, Jesus would make a great parent because he's not in the conversation. But as soon as Peter comes back inside, Jesus knows what he's been talking about. It's like that inside information where you just know. And don't you hate it when your parents did that? They just knew what you were talking about or knew what you and your brother were up to in the room. But anyway, Jesus knows what Peter's been talking about. Jesus knows that Peter has answered on behalf of him. And he says to him, he asks him with a question. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And Peter says correctly, he says, from others. See, kings of the day would take taxes off strangers. They would take taxes off their subjects. They would take taxes off foreigners that dealt with them. But they would never take taxes from their own children or from their own family. It would be, Matthew Henry says this, it would be absurd for the parents to take, levy taxes upon the children or demand anything from them. It is like one hand taxing the other. If, I, if my kids give me money, it's just returning it back to me because that's who they got it from. Or Nan, one or the other. And so Jesus is saying to them, there's, there's one tax that you're allowed to charge as a parent. Do you know what it is? It's called the dad tax. So when you buy them ice cream, you are allowed to have the dad tax. When you buy them something good, dads, you, you have permission. It's in, it's in law that you are allowed to take the dad tax. So that's, that's the one tax you're allowed to take as a parent. Peter gives his answer, then Jesus says this, then the children are exempt. What's Jesus saying in this little exchange? What's his point? I think he's reminding Peter that he is the son of God. And therefore, as the son of God, the temple is his temple. It's his father's house. And as a son, Jesus is under no obligation to pay this temple tax. See, Peter knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter has said this in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knows that Jesus is, this has been said about Jesus in Matthew 17. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter knows who Jesus is. He knows that he's the Son of God. But the general public, they don't know this yet. They don't have this revelation. Jesus is making a point to Peter. He's saying this, I am God's Son. And I am under no obligation to pay this temple tax. As the son of God, Jesus was exempt from paying the temple tax. Further, by law, priests and rabbis were exempt from paying the temple tax as well. So Jesus, the rabbi, he doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Jesus, the son of God, he doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Jesus, who may have already paid the temple tax, we don't know, is being maybe asked to pay it again. Jesus, legally, culturally, and spiritually, was under no obligation to pay the temple tax. He could have easily said, it is within my rights not to pay this tax. I'm under no obligation 
to pay this tax that's being asked of us today. But he didn't say that. He said, so that we may not cause offence, pay it anyway. Jesus does not want to cause offence, so he instructs Peter to pay the temple tax. He doesn't have to do it, but he does it anyway. It's like Jesus is saying, you know what? My rights, what's owed to me, that's not important right now. What's important here is people. People who don't know me and who I am. And I'm not going to let this event or this misunderstanding, I'm not going to let that cause offence. I find this a bit weird because Jesus had no problem offending people. He wasn't scared of offending people. The people he offended the most were who? The religious people. But he didn't care that they were offended. He, he, in fact, I think he liked it. He liked that it stirred them up a little bit and questioned what they were doing. When he healed someone on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were offended and Jesus didn't care. When he confronted the religious rulers about their practices, they would get offended. But on this occasion, Jesus makes a point about not offending people. One commentary put it this way. This is an unnecessary stumbling block because it addresses one's own rights rather than the truth of God's kingdom. If someone was going to get offended with the truth of God, like the Pharisees did, then there was nothing Jesus could do about it. But this situation is different. See, Jesus was prepared to let go of his rights for the sake of the people he came to reach. We read this about Jesus, Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of him, think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. See, although Jesus was under no obligation to pay this temple tax, he gives instructions to pay it anyway. He does this not to cause offence to the people that he came to reach. What about you and me? What does this mean for us? Matthew Henry writes that this story teaches us in many cases to recede from our right rather than give offence by insisting upon it. Make this clear, we must never decline our duty for fear of giving offence, never shrink back from the truth because you're worried about giving offence. But we must sometimes deny ourselves in that which is our secular interest or right rather than give offence. This is a challenging question, but the question is this. Are you prepared to surrender your rights for the sake of the gospel? Are you prepared to surrender what's owed to you for the sake of reaching someone with the love of God? Are you prepared to give up what you're entitled to? Practical example. You're at the shops. It's pouring rain. Your wife's in Melbourne. The Charlestown Square car park is chaotic. You've driven around for 20 minutes looking for one of those green lights to appear. And they're all red. This didn't happen, but it could have happened. It nearly happened, but I, they gave way. But you've been there before where you've waited for that park, where you've stalked someone from the shops and you've watched them walk out, snaking behind them. Excuse me? And you wait for that park and then some punk in red pea plates comes and takes it on you. You were owed that park. It was your park. It was your right to have it. How do you respond? Do you demand your rights? Maybe someone owes you something. Maybe you've been cheated. Maybe you've been falsely accused. 
Let me read this Spurgeon devotional I read yesterday morning, 24th of June. He says this, Be willing to lose money for conscience sake, for peace sake. Rest assured that losses for the Lord are not losses. Even in this life, they are more than recompensed. Recompensed? In some cases, the Lord prevents any loss from happening. As to our immortal life, what we lose for Jesus is invested in heaven. Didn't like that devotional yesterday. It was a bit challenging. What are you prepared to give up that you are entitled to for peace's sake, for conscience' sake? Do you need to demand and fight for what is rightfully yours? Or are you prepared to let God be the judge? Let eternity decide. You have to ask yourself this question. Is it really that important? Is it worth causing offence? Is it worth making a big deal about? Is it worth creating a stumbling block for someone else? To have what is rightfully yours. I know you're within your rights to fight for it. That's not the question I'm asking. When it's within your rights, but you're still prepared to let it go. See, I can't tell you when to fight for your rights and when to let it go. But all of us have a voice inside of us, the Holy Spirit. And I just think doing this simple act of stopping in that moment or pausing in that moment when you want to fight for what's yours, where you want to take revenge, where you want to say, it's rightfully mine. Just stopping and saying, God, what do you want me to do? How would you like me to respond? Before we react, asking God what our reaction should be. I think just simply doing that would make a huge difference in how we live our life. Would actually lead a lot of us to peace. Would actually lead a lot of us to relationship rather than offense, rather than stumbling blocks. Is it really that important is a question we need to ask God. And you don't ask me because I don't have the answers, but God does. In him is all the wisdom that we need for our life. And I just think stopping sometimes and considering and asking him would make a huge difference in our life. Jesus was prepared to let go of what was rightfully, he was under no obligation. If you are prepared to have this attitude that says, you know what, God, I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to sometimes let go of what is rightfully mine and trust you. Jesus shows us in this story that he will look after you and every one of your needs. Look at what he tells Peter to do to pay the temple tax. He says, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. This is not the normal way of paying a bill, is it? There's no bee pay here. This is go to the lake and catch a fish, and in that fish you will find the exact amount of what you need. Why did Jesus do it this way? Jesus had access to money. Judas was in charge of the money. He could have said, Judas, we've got a bill to pay. Can you take that money out of your hand and give it to the temple? He had access to money. He could have done it through human means, but he chose not to. Jesus chose to demonstrate that he is truly God and that God can and will do the miraculous and he isn't limited by our human means. He could have done it in a natural way, but he chose to do it in a divine way. 
Jesus has either somehow put the coin in the fish's mouth or he knows that that fish has swallowed a coin that morning and that's the first fish Jesus is going to catch. Either way, it won't make sense. There's no human explanation or reasoning to explain this story. It's a divine intervention. It's a miracle of Jesus in this situation. So Jesus could have used the natural, but he chose to use the divine. He could have used the left hand, but he chose to use the right hand. Lousy lot. But the second thing he does, he tells Peter to be involved. Why the fish? Sometimes you ask that when you order the fish at the restaurant and it's terrible. I ordered fish last Sunday for lunch and it was disgusting. And I was thinking, why the fish? I've gone the steak. Always go the steak. Matthew Henry says this, he chose to take it out of the fish's mouth when he could have taken it out of the angel's hand. There's a part for Peter to play in this miracle. You and I partner with God in the miraculous and the divine. Peter wanted this coin. He was going to have to go and and catch it. It wasn't just going to appear. Jesus could have just made the coin appear in Peter's hands. We know he did that. He was able to turn water into wine. He was able to make five loaves and fish. He could do all that. But in this instance, he had a role for Peter to play. He sent Peter the fisherman into the lake to go fishing. Peter was told to do what he could do, and that was go fishing, and that Jesus would take care of the rest. See, too many times we want the miracle. Too many times we ask God to meet the need, the thing that's been demanded of us, but we're not prepared to play our part to do what God tells us to do. See, it requires trust in God's word and obedience. Again, left lane, turn right. Using what you've got. Peter was a fisherman. He knew how to fish. He used what he had to get into the right-hand side, the provision of God, which he didn't have. He didn't have the coin. But he used what he had, obeyed God, and God provided what he needed. The left and the right together. Good offering word, Lozzie. When we have needs, when we have things that are demanded of us, even if it's unfair, God is able to provide, but it's going to require something of us. It's going to require our partnership with him. What an opportunity we have to partner with the supernatural hand of God and not be limited just to our own means and our own understanding and our own abilities the thing i find interesting in this story is that we're never told what happens we're told what was instructed we know that jesus tells peter what to do we know that jesus tells him where he'll get the coin and what he's to do with it but we don't know if peter actually went and did it we assume he did because it's in the bible why would you tell the story and not tell us the ending but i love this because It says this, the provision is there. Jesus has said it, but it's up to you whether you go and do anything about it. He's made a way for it to happen, but it's up to Peter whether he goes and does it. It's up to you and I whether we go and put it into action. God made the way, but there's a role for you and I to play. When you step out for God, when you sacrifice something that you might be entitled to, you give up some of your rights for the sake of the gospel. It can be a bit scary and you might wonder where your provision will come from. But you need to know that we have a God who provides and nothing is beyond him. More often than not, you have a role to play in your miracle. You have an act of obedience that God is asking you to do to see what he wants to do. Peter is told that if he does his part, he will find a four drachma coin. He's told to take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Another amazing thing with this story, the coin he will find will be exactly enough for both Jesus and Peter's temple tax. See, the exact amount of what was being asked of them. 
God knows exactly what we need. It wasn't change or a bit short, he needed to make it up, but it was the exact amount. More to this story. Who knew there was so much about a coin in a fish's mouth? We know that Jesus paid the tax even though he didn't have to. I said earlier this tax was a known, known for the atonement of the soul. To atone, atone means to make amends. Jesus, the one person who had nothing to atone for, paid the atonement tax anyway. It's significant that Jesus also paid Peter's atonement, not just his own. I love the way that Spurgeon sums up this story. Far greater and deeper truths lie slumbering down below. They are such as these. The glorious freedom of the Son, his coming under tribute for our sakes, so he didn't have to, but he did anyway, and this, and the clearance of himself and us by the one payment which he himself provided. By Jesus paying Peter's atonement money, he was declaring that now Peter, as a son of God, was under no obligation to pay this temple tax as well. See, Jesus wasn't under any obligation to pay it, and now he's saying, Peter, you're not under any obligation either. Jesus is setting Peter free from the requirement of paying the tax by providing a payment for him. Peter doesn't have to do anything other than obey, and he has this tax paid for him. Jesus was soon to go and pay for the atonement of all of our sins at a much greater cost, the cost of his own life. But in this story of the fish and the coin, which I'm not going to touch because it stinks, we have a small picture of what Jesus did for us. Did nothing wrong. No obligation to pay the tax. Paid it anyway, but also paid it for you and I so that we don't have to pay it. Little story in the Bible, a few verses, but it speaks of the whole Christian message of what Jesus has done for us. This morning, I want us to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, but I also want us to be challenged by his example of not demanding his rights or what was owed to him, but was prepared to let some things go for the sake of his kingdom and the sake of what he wanted to achieve on the earth. Can the creative team come back up? Jesus later, as we know, was to die on a cross. His death on the cross was not because of the things he had done wrong, but because of the things that we do wrong. The Bible says that the consequence of sin and and wrongdoing is death. But by Jesus dying on the cross, he absorbed our consequences. He took them upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And just like he paid the price of Peter's temple tax, he has paid the price for you and me and the things that we do wrong so that we can be made right with God. Let me read you a few scriptures as we come to a close this morning. Romans 3, verse 24. God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. So Jesus took the place. Jesus takes away the obligation that we have to pay our temple tax. You and I were once under an obligation to make an atonement for our sins, but now we are under no obligation because Jesus has done that for us. 
Jesus died on the cross and removed that requirement, removed that obligation. And the great thing is that even though Jesus died on the cross three days later, God rose him from the dead. And in doing that, he, he not only defeated death but he, and paid the price for death, but he removed its power over us. You and I are set free to live the lives he's called us to live because of what Jesus did. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know this is salvation. You know this is the greatest gift of all. That Jesus took our place. That Jesus sets us free. But you might be here this morning and you might not know this truth. You might not have ever received this gift. You know, when a gift is given, which Jesus did, he's given the gift, it has to be received. It's still there. It's always there. The gift is given to all of us. But when we believe in our heart and confess that he is Lord, that's when we receive the gift for our own life. And Matthew 10, 9 says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This morning I want to give you an opportunity if you're here and you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know the price he paid for you so that you can live in freedom, so that you can be declared righteous, so that you can come to church this morning and be under no obligation, under no requirement of you, because Jesus has paid that price for you. He's done it. He's finished it. And we respond by accepting him into our life. We respond by confessing that we believe in him. We believe that what the Bible says about him is true. And as we close our eyes this morning, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. And if you're here and you would like to receive Jesus into your heart, you'd like to confess with your mouth that you believe in him, then I want you to raise your hand across this room because I'd love just to pray with you. Our team would like to just connect with you after the service. And you're just saying, yeah, that's me. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to be set free from any condemnation, from any guilt, to know who he is, the difference he can make in my life. I'll give you a moment to raise your hand.